Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil. I'm very, very excited for our guest today. Today, we have a guest that has an extensive amount of experience in financing complex real estate transactions, and especially in the tax credit space. So if you ever wondered how the government can help fund you on your real estate development journey, definitely tune into today's podcast. But before we get into today's show, as you know, this show runs on reviews. And if you haven't already, please, please, please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever that you're getting your podcasts, wherever you're listening to today's show, leave a review. It really helps us get high quality guests like the one that we have today. So today's guest is Bua Benite. Now, Bua is the CEO of Dumas Collective and directs vision and oversight of the acquisition, development, property management and financial activities of the conglomerate from Washington, D.C. to New York. He has an extensive tax credit financing experience in low-income housing tax credits, new markets tax credits, and historical tax credits, and has closed on financing from nearly every public capital source available. So to date, Dumas Collective closed over $2.2 billion in financing, resulting in over 7600 units of workforce housing and affordable housing units. He maintains a narrow focus on the creation and preservation of affordable housing for people of modest means. Bua has over 16 years of experience in financing complex transactions, and he speaks regularly at industry-focused events and serves as a teaching mentor for the Equitable Development Program and numerous other programs. So, Bua, thank you so, so much for being a guest on our show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I had the pleasure of listening in on a couple different workshops that you've had, you know, speaking engagements and um, heard about your story, heard about the grit. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, there was an, an event. I'm kind of the guy like I I don't really say a lot at networking events. I, I kind of I'm the ones that's, that's like in the back, just taking notes you know, putting pen to paper, trying to figure out, you know, how did this guy do it? Right. And I heard him, you know, he said something like when he was starting his company, he used to take meetings at uh, the local bus boys and poets. And I was like, man, this guy is something to him. But for our audience who really don't know much about who you are, right, how you got to where you are today, some of the things that you had to go through to get to where you are today, you know, give us some color on like who Bua is. Um. Well, the black and white version, and we'll go to the color version. Uh, and look, I think, you know, the one thing you and I have in common is the fact that we're immigrants, right? So for us immigrants, uh, speak for myself, you know, we've, we always consider America the land, you know, the land of the free, but, you know, it's a place where dreams truly come true, right? Where, like, um, I think... Our version of the American dream is way more pronounced. We see, not only do we see it, but we also know that it's attainable and or achievable, right? And 
the quest, you know, to sort of come here and make something out of nothing was sort of the foundation that, you know, me and my parents um, set out to do. So um, my siblings, you know, to give an example, you know, my siblings reside in London. Two of them used to reside in London. One of them has since moved back to Nigeria. And I refused to move to London because I just didn't see that as a place where dreams come true. So I basically told my parents that it's America or nothing at a very early age. That's just how strong. It's funny, the same convictions I had back then are the same convictions that I have now. And for the most part, they have zero rationality when those sort of grandiose statements are made. But I think, you know, when you say to give some color into who I am, that would be the first thing I would say is I have a crazy belief in myself and my thoughts and my intuition. And I've always just felt like if I just do what I want to do, what I feel is right for me, then it would be okay. And so my parents acquiesced. They didn't want me to just sort of, you know, flounder in, in Nigeria and not do anything. And they felt like, okay, well, if he wants to go to America, I guess he'll go figure it out himself. And thankfully, they listened to me and the rest is history. So strong convictions, deep desire to succeed and wanted to come to a place where I felt I could be the best, yeah. you know, possible myself. That's really, really great there. I think when you come to America from a third world country, it's a different taste in your mouth. And I tell people all the time, like when I was growing up, like we had to take showers outside type of thing. And to hear people complain about hot water, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, the lack thereof, I, I really don't want to hear it respectfully. Yeah, it's just like, whatever. It's like, wait, what? Hot water is a luxury. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a true luxury, right? Um, you know, again, not to say that where we grew up was really all that bad. It's just that perspective matters, right? And I think that that's sort of what, you know, like you said, that's what allows us to, allows me to see the world very, very differently, allows me to see America very differently, right? Because my perspective is very, very different, right? So I tell people, like, I'd never complain about sitting in traffic. Like, if you want to see traffic, come to Lagos. You see traffic, right? But at the same time, this is a place where, like, you know, if you want to experience real bureaucracy of things not happening or things not moving, right? Come and experience it. So yes, you know, America's got its issues and its faults, but you're talking to someone who has managed to take down over, what, $200 million of public resources over a 16-year or 17-year career timeframe. And with all of those inefficiencies that we experience in America, I've still figured out a way to make it work, right? So it's all a matter of perspective, and that's what I always tell everybody is, is uh, you know, with all of the inefficiencies that exist, I'm still very grateful for the experience that I have. Right now. I totally agree. I think perspective matters, especially as a real estate investor. And I would imagine as a developer, you know, you have to have a certain intuition and a certain outlook on things. And in this case, nothing goes according to plan. Right. But I think having that perseverance and that attitude that uh, you're going to get through it certainly helps to get you to the other side. So. You have a ton of experience in the, you know, the complex transactions, the tax credit space. Give our audience maybe some uh, a quick overview on like what the tax credit space is, maybe specifically on the LIHTC side of things. Like, what does that process look like from 
for someone who's trying to figure out how can the government help them get into the space? I think before I jump into the tax credit world, I think it would it would be helpful for folks to understand why I really devoted and have devoted a considerable amount of my career in doing tax credit deals. So when you look at the real estate transaction side by side, right, whether you're doing a conventional deal or you're doing uh, an affordable housing deal or public finance deal, a conventional transaction is one that requires you to bring significant amount of equity to the table, right? So the bank is going to put up 80% and you have to put up the other 20%. And that 20% is not easily available to developers such as myself because we didn't necessarily grow up in a wealthy household, don't have a rich uncle. And frankly, I can't go to my church and raise money like the way some of my peers can uh, when they go to the synagogue. So in order not to be discouraged, I basically learned about the public finance world and the public finance space, whereby for the most part, real estate transactions are by and large 100% finance. The only major hurdle that we would have to overcome in that space is having the liquidity and net worth, as well as the experience executing on those transactions. I looked at those two transactions side by side and said, oh, I can still be in the real estate space, still be able to accumulate and aggregate a number of assets and do it in a way whereby I don't have to beg, crawl like I would on a conventional deal to basically go secure equity that eludes me and frankly still eludes me till this very day. So I just felt that the public finance space had less of a barrier to entry than a conventional space. And that's why I ended up going to public finance space. So now when you're in the public finance space, you really have to understand all of the plethora of financial options that are available, right? So you talk of Credits. However, low-income housing tax credits is just one of the multitude of credits that are out there. You've got historic tax credits. You've got solar tax credits. There are a slew of tax credits out there. And basically, what does that mean? It means that if I, as a wealthy individual, buy credits, I get to have a similar dollar-for-dollar credit against my tax liabilities. That's basically what it is. So if I buy a million dollars worth of credit at 80 cents on the dollar, then I basically get to go write off a million dollars um, worth of income on my tax. On my t- as a, so if I owe Uncle Sam a million dollars, I could basically wipe out my million dollar liability by buying tax credits. That's basically what it is. And I was like, oh. And Uncle Sam does it in such a way that in order for you to get those dollar for dollar credits, you have to do something very, very good with the money. So you can't go buy a yacht and get a credit. You can't buy a plane and get a credit. You actually have to do something good. So you you have to invest in affordable housing or invest in historic properties or invest in renewable energy, which again, basically speaks to some of the greatness that exists in this country. It's like you've just come up with alternative ways of bringing in private capital into ensuring that there is you know, affordable homes for people to live in, create new forms of renewable energy such that we have a cleaner earth and also, you know, do the same thing as far as preserving our older assets. And all I had to do is convince those investors 
which are way more friendlier, amenable to me and others who play in the space. So I basically did those two then side by side, and I haven't looked back ever since. So that's the world. That's how I made the decision to go in the tax credit direction. And that's just sort of the world that we play in. And that's what has led to creating this ecosystem of ours that is, you know, $2.2 billion worth of transactions and, you know, 7,600 units later. Makes total sense. I can definitely relate to that on the, on the equity side. You know, I'm syndicating multifamily right now. And, you know, when we working on a 29 unit right now, we're about to go hard and do off due diligence and, when that clock starts, you got to start making those phone calls, right? But, you know, in your space, depending on how your capital stack is, if you have somebody like Amazon, right, and their housing initiative, right, that you can call and and they can deliver that one nice check to you, that's pretty good, right? Or if you're working with a syndicator on your side of things that can help you with getting that equity piece, that's totally different maybe than trying to call, you know, your friends and family and get 30 here, 50 here, 100 there. I can certainly see the opportunity behind that, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, to go beyond that too is if you sort of think of real estate as a true wealth creation tool, you know, we always go back and forth in terms of, you know, how do I create wealth if I have to sort of turn those properties every five to seven years? And with tax credit deals, you're basically relegated by law to hold on to those assets for a minimum of 15 years. You know, so, you know, we can debate both sides all day long, but I just sort of, you know, again, challenge folks to sort of really understand those two different asset classes and what that means for the ultimate goal of. And I've just, I've found that my path is the path that creates the capacity, right, that we have today, right, that has allowed us to scale significantly than where we were when we first started and puts us in a place where, we can create wealth. But more importantly, our resume is, speaks for itself because regardless of whether or not I build an affordable tower or conventional tower, my resume is, I can still take you to my tower right now. It's still the same skill set that is required to build an affordable tower as it would a conventional, a market rate tower. You know what I'm trying to say? So at the end of the day, I'm still a developer. And if anyone wants to dispute that, just come down to, to any one of the cities where we're active in and you can see our residential towers standing side by side of market rate tower. But those skill sets are the skill sets that we've been able to develop by by the virtue of, you know, utilizing public financing. Makes total sense. I think the difference is just the, the numbers, right? It's just a numbers game. You know, in the tax credit space, you're trying to fit the incomes in a certain bracket that you have to based off of whatever set asides on the are required within your local uh, housing financing agency and whatever their initiatives are for that tax credit year. So it's really just a numbers game. And to your point, you know, it just applies left to right. It just depends on if you're building for someone that is, you know, 30% AMI or if you're building for luxury housing as well, which kind of leads me into the next question that I had for you. I know that you talk a lot about luxury affordable housing. And, you know, when I was getting into this business, I had a, a an interest in providing housing that was clean, that was nice granite countertops, uh, a dishwasher that was nice. Because a lot of times when people hear like tax credit, they have this negative connotation to it. Like, uh, you know, section eight housing, right? You know, you, you know, you get builder's grade, you know, you just slap it in or, or, you know, they, you, you don't really want to do anything nice because so 
what's luxury affordable housing to you? What does that mean to you? So the way it came about for us, and thankfully we trademark it. So I tell everybody, if you're going to use it, you got to pay me royalties. <laughs> we own that trademark. Um, where it came from for me was, um, if you sort of look at the socioeconomic climate, right, as it relates to black and brown people, right, regardless of whatever their social standing, I have yet to see a poor black and brown person look disheveled, right? In all of my travels, we always look fly, regardless of our socioeconomic status. You agree? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Right? I think that is definitely right? a part of the, the, the culture, for sure. Right. We've got on the fly kicks. We've got on the fly gear, you know, the belts, like Biggie says, right? We're Gucci down to the socks. So that's, you know, bucket number. That's, you know, parking lot A. And parking lot B, I'm like, how is it that the housing doesn't match our flyness? Right. And when you sort of dig deeper, you realize that one, we're not the ones designing our own housing. And quite frankly, we're not, we don't even own it. So not only do we not own it, we're not designing it. So basically someone else has designed a place for us that they feel like, oh, because of our socioeconomic status, this is what we are deserving. So regardless of where you go in, on this earth, and you know, let's just take America as an example, you can always identify, regardless of where you go, like you can drive down a block and be like, oh, yeah, that's the affordable house. <laughs> oh, that's where the poor people live. But yet, if you hang out in that neighborhood, people still look fly, right? So so that always sort of bothered me in a way. And it bothered me because having been in real estate for so long, I always say, like, there is no such thing as affordable brick. There's no such thing as affordable windows. There's no such thing as affordable, like, like... It's still the same, the, the, the same amount of money that it costs to build a market rate building, I dare say, is the same amount of money as it costs to build a tax rate building. And in most cases, an affordable housing transaction costs way more than building a market rate transaction. So the only distinguishing factor there is thought in design. That's it. Someone thought that market rate tenants are deserving of a very thoughtful design. And someone thought that affordable housing tenants are not deserving of a thoughtful design. And you don't have to take my word for it, right? You could just drive around and you can see it. It's, I'm not saying anything that isn't factually the case, right? We can all tell. So I basically just said to myself, well, I have the ability to not only own the building, but also design the building. And I like to look fly. So I'm going to make sure that our architects are aware of the fact that we want our buildings to represent who we are as human beings. And that's how we came about coining the term or the phrase affordable luxury housing. And we've been designing our buildings to represent that flyness ever since. I love it. I love it. And to your point, I think that because certain properties are located in certain areas, I think there is the the stigmatism behind it 
I think just in the investment space in general of saying, well, these people, they don't care if they have this, they would be okay with that. And I've always personally had a, had a problem with that. And yeah. I think tax credit development presents a unique opportunity to leverage government subsidy like you're doing to change some of that, to change a narrative on what people think that other people maybe have been born into unfortunate circumstances, right? Because that's essentially all it is. You know, the people who are living in affordable housing communities, a lot of times were just born within unfortunate circumstances. And so just because that was the card that was dealt to them does not mean that they're undeserving of nice things. Yeah, especially if you're using government resources to actually pay for those things, right? Why not? And you'd be surprised what that does to the tenants psychologically as well. Because if you give me crap, I'm going to treat it like crap. And I really believe in that, right? But if you give me something, I mean, like, think about the lengths that people go through to take care of that. Like, there have been fights over people stepping on other people's J's. Just think about that for a second, psychologically speaking, right? Like, if you step on my J's right now, you are not going to have a fight, right? So, because I bought, I spent my money to buy the J's and I want my J's to look fresh. So, if you give me something that's fresh and nice, the likelihood of me treating it like crap is very, very slim. Again, there are going to be one or two, like, as they are in anything, right? There's going to be, you know, but... I don't live my life for the anomalies. I live my life for the general people and those people who want flyness. And we own those assets now. We built them. And you can walk into any one of our buildings and they still look relatively new because people respect the environment in which they're they're in and they want to keep it that way. They don't want to go back to something that looks old and decrepit and lack of thought. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that... That's really how our how our culture is. And I think when you give people opportunities, you need to give them also grace, right? To treat the property well. And a lot of times, you know, people are really proud of like where they live. So I think this concept of thinking that, you know, people are just going to tear it up because they live in a certain area is way, way overblown and, and far-fetched. So I 100% agree with that. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk about your organizational structure, right? You are vertically integrated. You have the equity side of, of your company as well. How has like the tax credit model maybe allowed you to maybe scale into like market rate, if any? Did you feel like because you were able to leverage the government subsidy to, to build your portfolio and these properties are held long term, that that allows you to be a little bit more, allows you to take on more scale on like the market rate side of things? Um, is that... Maybe kind of walk us through maybe how 
maybe your scaling plans or how that the tax credit has allowed you to scale to maybe doing larger deals or maybe taking on larger equity checks because now you have that infrastructure behind you? Yeah. So, you know, we believe in, you know, we're very old school, old fashioned company, even though we're all relatively young, but we sort of subscribe to growth via osmosis, right? Meaning just like, you know, the natural occurrence of things, right? So, you know, we started off as developers and, you know, that's where the company Dante's Partners, that's the main company that everybody knows, Dante's Partners. And we just try to perfect our skills in the development space, you know, and, you know, we were able to utilize, you know, all the alphabet super financing that's available for us to develop, you know, a slew of assets. And we woke up one day and we just said, I think it was six years ago, and we just said, you know what, we've developed all these assets. We don't really have a clear line of sight as to how these assets are performing operationally now that you've given birth to them. And how do we ensure that our financial objectives that we set out when everything was on pen and paper are actually being achieved? So we just said, you know what, we're going to attempt to manage these assets that we've developed. So about six years ago, we created a property management company. And I always remind everybody that company is six years old. So Dante's partners are 16. And that's a teenager. And the management company is six years old, which is, you know, can barely talk. <laughs> right? Uh, so it's very elementary. So, um, but, you know, we're holding our own. Um, we've figured out a way to build a pretty significant company around the assets that we own. And frankly, just continually using ourselves as the guinea pigs to hopefully one day grow that into a company that can potentially do third-party work for other folks as well. So proud of where we are so far. We have a lot of work to do to be great property managers, but we are working towards that and and, uh, should be be in business for as long as we've been in business as a development company. Something tells us that we will be a force of nature. Um, Second you know, tangentially to that as well because of the platform we had, right? So we've developed properties. Something says, oh, you know, these guys can count. They know how to <laughs> manage assets. You know, they know how to uh, assess good investments. Let's go into the value-add space and see if we can create another vertical that acquires. So we have one that builds. And let's just create one that is just exclusively an acquisitions arm. And we'll do that in partnership with institutional investors who are supportive of our mission and give us the necessary dollars needed to acquire assets. So that's how we created Dante's Community Partners, which is the investment arm of of the Dumas Collective. And the fourth company is now given the volume of work that we have going on on the development side and on the acquisition side, we need a company to just manage all the construction, right? So if you have 7,000 plus units and you're saying 10% of those units have to be turned every year, 
that's a project. <laughs> that's a development project, right? So we, that needs to be managed. So, you know, let's create another vertical where, you know, we sort of own, you know, we've got a CEO of that company and they're primarily in the business of ensuring that all things construction are spearheaded and overseen by that organization. So that's basically, again, all natural, progressive growth based off of the sheer number of activities that we have. And luckily, you know, because we are adept entrepreneurs, we are not afraid to to start something new and tackle new challenges and new problems as they come about. So that entire collective now employs over a hundred people and counting. And that's basically how we've scaled from a development company to where we are now. So I'm not sure of what other verticals may, may come up or may arise in the future, but these are the four companies that I have the pleasure of overseeing and working with all the smart people who watch over each and every one of those verticals and ensure that they are successful. That's awesome. So you have the, the property management arm, you have the construction management or developers rep arm as well, right? Then you have the, mm-hmm. the development arm, the tax credit, and then you have the investment management on the investment side of things. So let's talk about the investment side mm-hmm. of things. You know, what types of assets, like what's your, you know, your, your criteria, what types of assets are you looking for? And maybe what, what's your outlook on the, the economy and the multifamily space today as it relates to maybe your acquisition criteria and how you're looking at deals? So I've always believed in multifamily assets, right? Even if I just sort of look at my own personal life and my own personal journey and having lived in multiple cities, right? I've always lived in an apartment. Majority of Americans live in an apartment. And if anyone ever needed additional assurance as to why multifamily assets are the assets to own, look at what happened during COVID. Everybody was stuck at home, right? So for me, you know, I always tell everybody I'm a very commonsensical investor, right? You know, I always felt like if I were in one of three major food groups, whether it was food, housing, or clothing, I would be wildly successful. And obviously now the, the fourth food group now is technology. That wasn't the case maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But if I were in any one of those four food groups, I dare say I would I would be wildly successful, but I just felt very comfortable with the shelter food group because it just comes natural to me. And that's why I am in real estate, right? If fashion came natural to me, I think you'd be hearing my name right now, right? I would be out there, but I like to wear it. I don't like to design. So as far as investing is concerned, we just try to take the same philosophy as we do on our on our development side. We like affordable slash attainable slash workforce housing primarily because there are way more working class people than wealthy people in America and the world. And working class people are always going to need a place to live and they're going to need a relatively inexpensive place to live. So when I look at my annual turnover, my annual turnover is significantly lower than that of my market rate counterparts. When I look at my absorption rate, 
when we deliver a building, our absorption rates are typically higher than my market rate counterparts. And yes, we may not make as much rents. And by the way, we're not doing a lot of concessions. So our net rents, as far as our performer is concerned, are indeed our net rents, right? Not the net rents that my market rate counterparts do after you apply concessions and all the other discounts that, I mean, you know, you know, I think you've had some experience working with the with our market rate. So there's a lot more, for me, there's a lot more <laughs> predictability. And and I'm not spending as much on marketing like my market rates counterparts are doing. You see, you're trying, you see what I'm trying to say? Like when I sort of look at this particular asset class that we've been in for such a long time, you're getting a nice sort of, you know, steady throughput, right? As far as income is concerned, as far as operating expenses are concerned, right? It's not a war against who's got the flyest rooftop and the sexy pool and all that stuff, right? Our folks just need a decent quality and safe place to live. And that's what we provide, right? If they could afford the luxury apartment, then they would not be looking to reside in our place. So that asset class is an asset class that I don't think is going to disappear anytime soon. We look for deals that we feel have a lot of room for improvement and for growth. And we acquire those assets and we do so by renovating those units, updating the apartment life and safety features and collective rents and provide resident services as, and as a means or an amenity to be able to ensure that our tenants don't have a reason to live and along the way provide good, healthy, sound returns for our investors in our marketplace as well. So, you know, as far as that company is concerned, we've acquired a little over 1,800 units so far and counting. And um, the only thing that is in our way right now is, you know, the high interest rates that we are all experiencing. But Look, if you underwrite and it pencils, it's still business as usual. Does that mean we have to come to the table with a little bit more equity than everyone is used to? Sure. And we now we just got to solve for that equity and making sure that, you know, those cash and cash are overall IRRs in place at the time we dispose of the asset. Yeah, makes total sense. Makes total sense. I think, you know, we're... In the same space as well, looking for high quality, you know, affordable housing in strong market factors, strong demand factors uh, that really we can provide a good source of living and housing. Right. I think today is a unique opportunity to do so. Uh, I think it's especially in, in an environment. I think, you know, multifamily has a long run. Right. I think, you know, if you're first, if you know what you're doing. Right. Because just because you own a building doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's going to rent from you specifically. I think that, uh, you know, if you know how to acquire goods, properties in strong areas with strong jobs, strong fundamentals, I think if you buy that asset at the right price, you mentioned, you know, interest rates are going to we can't control that. But if the numbers work and it makes sense from a fundamental perspective, because I think that's where a lot of new investors get caught up with is that, uh, you know, they ignore the fundamentals, right? They ignore the fact that yeah. um, they're 
overpaying for a C-class property that has a ton of deferred maintenance and, you know, you, you buy the building and you're thinking that you're just going to do a value-add rehab and not take care of CapEx dollars or CapEx, you know, renovations. So I think right now is is really, really important for investors to to focus on the fundamentals because the yeah. tailwinds on rent growth and thinking that you're going to just jump into a deal and get the same amount of rent growth that we got 12 months and get out of it in the next two to three years, you're in for a headache with that one. So yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So I know that you, you know, you, you also talk with professional athletes. How can professional athletes, as you probably know, we have, we have, we have had a lot of professional athletes on our show and, you know, there are a lot of folks that I've spoken to are interested in development. Some are interested in tax credit development. You know, how are you helping athletes get into development as a whole? And how do you think, you know, athletes can learn about getting into real estate development? I would tell you that I am, you know, very interested in, in general, I am very, I would tell, I would say that one of my callings in life is to share my knowledge such that I'm able to, for lack of a better word, create or nurture, probably, yeah, nurture more black and brown millionaires. Like that's that's my calling, right? And and I think I always say I, I use myself as a guinea pig for that experiment. So whoever wants to listen to me ramble about how you go about preserving, you know, because again, most athletes in our community or most individuals in our community that come into money first are either athletes or entertainers, right? And, you know, as someone who has had the pleasure of making some money, you know, I woke up one day, I was like, wait, who do I turn to? Who do I go to? Because there aren't that many of us, right? And and by and large, when most of us make money, we run away from, from our community because we're afraid that people want to steal it from us, right? So I was like, well, you know, the big question for me is, who do I go to? And thankfully, I've got folks like, like you know, Boom and Kitty. And, you know, we're all the same age, right? So whatever Bo does, you know, I'm experimenting with him. But, you know, he's got access to way more wealthier folks than I do. So, you know, he sort of, you know, we sort of share knowledge in terms of what folks are doing. And I'm able to take that and apply it and apply it to my own self and experiment with other things. So I still have that to say that preservation of wealth and, and creating more wealth is something that, is very important to me and something that I love to talk about in terms of making sure and uplifting our community. So when the opportunity for me comes to do that, I seize the day. I think I'm just as passionate about preserving wealth um, as I am about creating affordable housing. So, you know, what I always say is, look, I believe that we need to look at money differently and what do I mean by that? I, I believe that we need to look at having our money work for us such that you're creating residual income, which is very important. And that residual income will still allow you to do the things that you still want to do. So what does that mean? It means like if I want to go acquire a $250,000 car today, as opposed to taking money out of my bank account today to buy that $250,000 car, I would rather invest my overall principal and allow my principal to generate interest 
or dividends, whereby if I chose to go buy that $250,000 car, my principal isn't affected at all. And most of us don't even understand that concept. Just that concept alone is stuff that we don't understand because we all believe that, oh, if I want to buy something, I'm just going to take it out of my bank account. But my own thing is like, you actually don't have to take it out of your bank account if you just made some stealthy moves whereby you could generate 250 or half a million or even a million dollars a year worth of ancillary income if you just made some key strategic moves. And that's what I try to instill in a lot of individuals' head, particularly athletes, such that um, they are able to preserve their wealth. And some of them are doing it. Some of them, I think, are slowly making their way there because it's hard, right? It's hard when you make money, right? You want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. But, you know, going the route that I suggest people do takes a little bit of sacrifice. It's actually not a lot. It's a little bit of sacrifice. But if you are looking to build a business at the end of the day, as you know, Yannick, is the banks are always going to come to you for two things, liquidity and net worth. And if you're not able to demonstrate those two things, it doesn't matter how much cash you have in your bank account. Yeah. So by going the route that I suggest, you basically could, you know, easily kill multiple birds with one stone. Yeah, yeah. That's basically what I am trying to get folks to be more aware of as they go down this journey of making money. Because like they say, it's not about what you make, it's what you keep, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you that by... This is how you keep the money that you make while at the same time still enjoy the fruits of your labor. If you still want to buy the the iced out grill Cuban links, you can still do that. If you want to get the ghost, you can still do that. But don't go into your bank account and deplete your earnings by doing so, is what I said. So hopefully that answers your question. That's sort of where my mindset is at right now in terms of wealth creation. Yeah, yeah, very, very important message there. I was just thinking back to all, all of the money that I spent, or have seen some of the guys that I've played with spend on, on things, and and have had conversations years later after retirement. Uh, I retired about five years ago, and and you know some athletes that I know that have made millions of dollars are struggling right now, struggling because they're check to check and you sometimes you look up and think, well, why is that? Right. Well, it's because of the financial acumen, right. The financial literacy point of things. And I tell people all the time, you know, I mean, a lot of those athletes are, you know, grew up in poverty or grew up where they never had things. And when you go from being a broke college student to an overnight millionaire, you immediately start thinking about all the stuff that you can buy because that's all that you wanted when you were younger. Right. And, And sometimes it's a reflection of the culture as well where that's what you do, right? So I totally 100% agree with the need for the financial literacy perspective amongst the uh, the athletic community. Correct. And I think that this is where, like, for, you know, again, speaking of our culture, right, I feel like, in a way, talking about money in our culture is almost like a taboo. You know, it's like you can talk about everything else, but no one wants to talk about, like, it just it's just weird. I'm, and I'm and listen, I'm you know, like 
I'm still that way. If someone came up to me right now and said, yo, how much your money you make? I'm like, why you want to know? It's not your business. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, but at the same time, I feel like if we just, like, I'm very, very, like, if I were to sit down with Jay and or LeBron or any of those guys, the first question I'm asking is, I mean, yeah, look, kudos to LeBron for for getting the all-time scoring leader, all that stuff. That's great. But I'm I'm more interested in in the money moves. Like, like, like that's what I'm interested in. It's like, ah, right, cool. So this 30 AM that you're making a year, how do you chop it up between what you paid on Uncle Sam? Oh, by the way, do you even pay any? I mean, well, yeah. like, you, 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 you it's like, that's where my mind is. Like, I would go to a concert and I would, which I can't, but I went to, you know, Burner Boy, right? And I'm like literally counting all the seats and the ticket prices. <laughs> like, I'm like, man, this guy's about to make $2 tonight. Like, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm like, wait, how many shows is it doing? It's doing 20 shows. Wow, that's like a $40 million payday. Like, okay. Like, again, cool, happy for him, extraordinarily happy for him. But then in my mind, I'm like, all right, cool. But then what are the money moves? Right? What are the money moves that we're making in order to build capacity and build an ecosystem and build a community whereby there are lots of us out here creating well, then start to change the overall economic cycle that we find ourselves falling into. And that's what I'm interested in. And, and again, I'm, I'm a very, very small piece of it. I've, like I said, I've made some money, but not anything as outrageous as what we see some of our peers do. But I don't think that my, um, that my kids are going to have to, you know, struggle to pay for college. At least I hope not. Right. Because of just some key strategic moves, again, like I said, that I've made um, over the over the last several years, right? So, and I'm not that old, right? I still I still have some youth in me, so so you see, what I'm yeah. trying to say, so in in a very short period, of like you know, we're only talking about a company that's been in existence for for 16 years. So if you play in a league for 10 years, right, you should be doing way better than you started off with, right? So. Before I leave, you know, I was told that I need to make sure I promote a building that we are delivering any day now. It's called Delta Pearl. Yeah. And District Columbia, it's a, it's a site that we're very, very excited about. Probably one of the most amazing, you know, financial structuring we've done. But a huge, not only am I bigging up the building, Delta Pearl, but it's also a huge shout out to our partners in the deal. The Deltas, you know, you know, they gave us an opportunity that, again, because it was part of their mission to create capacity of Black developers, we ended up becoming a beneficiary of that mandate. So, again, it's not just the making of the cash. It's also what you're doing in the positions in which you're in. So if you're in a position to really effectuate change and change people's lives, Go find people in your community that can do that work. Because again, that's how you get to like that opportunity changed the trajectory of my firm. You know what I'm trying to say? And because of that, I'm able to pay it forward in the architects that we identify and the general contractors that we identify. And, you know, just because now if we do a hundred million dollar deal, that's a lot of people in the community that can eat off of that entire project by performing certain tasks and performing it at a very high level. So that's the other 
side of the equation that I just also want to make sure that your viewers are thinking about as well is it's one thing for you to be on, but you got to figure out a way to make sure that people in your community are, are being put on as well. Absolutely. Very, very cool. Bua, man, we we had a really good uh, conversation today about a lot of different things. You know, our audience got a chance to learn more about you, your background, uh, how you got to where you are today, your mission-driven, you know, luxury affordable housing stand, projects that you're working on. Um, and I think that any developer who's, you know, aspiring to get to where Bua is, I think, you know, just listen to, you know, his voice, you know, how he thinks, you know, his perspective about things, because I think uh, some of those things are, are translatable into the world of real estate and that any one of our, our listeners today can definitely gain value from and really pay attention to and really think about where's the message in between the lines, right? I, I get the, the impression that he's a, you know, very soft-spoken guy. I think he's very intentional about what he's doing and purposeful in what he does. So, Bua, thank you so much. You know, how can our audience, you know, follow you, follow your journey, follow your company, uh, get involved maybe with what you're doing, invest with you? Well, you know, Dante's Partners is on all social media platforms. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's where, I believe that's how you and I yeah. met, if I'm not mistaken. That's how you officially connected with me. Um, I, I'm very responsive. I respond to every email that comes into my inbox. Obviously, the same thing too on LinkedIn. You know, this is a big thing for me. And um, I just tell people, whatever you don't know, go seek the knowledge. And to the extent that I am able to provide that knowledge to you, no problem. Just make sure you've got a bottle of Class Azul next to you while you're coming to me for, <laughs> for sage advice. That's my price. It's a bottle of Class Azul. So, so, so yeah. um, but no, nah, but seriously, um, I, I love what I do. But with more importantly, I love to share knowledge and um, appreciate you giving me the opportunity and the platform to continue to expose other folks like us into the space such that they can go out and Go kill it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bua, thank you for being a guest on our show. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Let's go out there. Be great today. Please leave a review and remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Bua. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.